What are we doing, guys? Oh, we're doing the prisoner, I think. <laughs> are, are we, or are we just sitting here? <laughs> uh, I'm not quite ready yet this morning to be the bringer in her. Uh, if we go alphabetically, then it's David. Oh, Bill, you're a bringer care. of wonder. I'll bring us. I'm tired. I didn't sleep. I'll just bring us in. Just shut up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> shut up and let him do it. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. All right, you want to do the prisoner? All right, then. The Village People, an exploration of the prison. With Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Village People. As we look at the 1960s classic series, The Prisoner. My name is Paul Spataro. I am here with Mr. Andrew Leyland, or Sir Andrew Leyland, if you will. I am not a sir. I am a free man. We are also here with Barrister David Pascarella. Come on. Good day. I'm number three. And Dr. William Robinson, who's not quite ready yet. <laughs> I am not a doctor. I'm evil Peter Pan. Yeah, okay. Took me a second to actually figure that one out. So today we are looking at our second episode of The Prisoner, but it is actually not the second. It is uh, Dance of the Dead, which is actually listed on Wikipedia as episode eight. But we are doing this in order of what's the... Uh, uh, the San Jose... Uh, I'm Klingon! K-T-E-H stations uh, Scott Appel's viewing order based on things that are said in the episode and the way they flow because as we'll see in this episode he's mentioned I've only recently arrived so things like that okay and if you listen to the show and you're following along at the end of each episode we'll tell you which the next one is so that you can be ready uh, if you want to watch and, and be all prepared for the next one with notes and stuff like that uh, at some point soon, I will set up a website. I expect, or an email address rather. I expect it to be thevillagepeople at gmail dot com, but that, unless that's already taken, uh, but we will see. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, do we have any prisoner news? Uh, it's still cancelled. <laughs> We're still okay. waiting on that second season. And then I will throw this over to Sir Andrew Leyland to take over from here. Well, wait, wait. Well, Bill has some prisoner news. Oh, Hold on. Do the synopsis, then we'll do the who is number two, or who would we have... Remember, we have the ongoing thing, who would we recast number two as? Let me, let me ask you something before we get into that, because I actually have two potential thoughts on that. Uh, and one is somebody who's more closer to contemporary with the show and one is somebody who's currently contemporary and I wasn't sure if we have any rules on that. You know it's funny you mentioned that too because I was uh, I had written my notes recast now and then as I wrote that I was like hmm well maybe maybe we should thought somebody that was like you know was around then for those of you who don't know what contemporary means Okay, well, you know what, at the end of, when we do it, I'm going to give both of my choices today, but uh, I guess in the future I will feel to, free to pick whichever I prefer. That's what I do. I just go with whoever I think would be really good in this particular role, especially given as somebody else was cast. Oh, I did not know that. In this episode, mm. and it fell through at the last minute. Mm. Uh, we can go into that. A, when we get to it, and B, when I actually find it in the book. <laughs> but while I'm doing that, Dance of the Dead. The prisoner, trapped in a village from which there is no escape, where he is forced to join the Dance of the Dead. This is a nightmare world where even reality is a shifting, slippery shadow. 
What you should do is find yourself a nice young lady for carnival. You're too independent. Now they're pretty and unattached. But her. Quite unsuitable. I'm independent. Don't forget. Here, nothing and no one can be trusted. Well, he's given me quite a lot of information, but he's reluctant to go any further. I'm afraid I'll have to be more extreme. Of course, I'll win in the end. I always do. Why are they trying to kill me? They don't know you're already dead. Locked up in the long box in that little room. Don't let the prisoner escape you on this channel. As Paul has alluded to, was originally planned to be episode two, but aired much later, either seventh or eighth, depending on where you are or which viewing order you're looking at for reasons we will get into later. It originally aired on ITV in the UK on Friday, the 17th of November, 1967, and on CBS in the United States on Saturday, the 27th of July, 1968. It was written by Anthony Skeen, directed by Don Chaffey, and number two in this episode was played by Murray Morris. The TV World Synopsis. I don't know what a synopsis is. The TV World Synopsis runs thus. Death lurks amid the gaiety of a carnival, and number six is put on trial when he makes an audacious bid to foil his captors. I love that these are very brief. They are my favourite thing about the book. Mm. So, you know, I think a synip sauce is like some type of snake dipping sauce. Is it spicy? I I would think so. Yes. Excellent. Good. Yeah. Then I approve. All right, then. It's, um, it's like a politi- it's like a political th- ad. I am Andrew Leyland, and I approve of this. Message. I approve this message. I approve yeah. this synip sauce. Uh, before we get into the discussion of this most unusual episode, even by the prisoner standards. Should we discuss who you would possibly like to see as a number two were this film today? Or alternatives in 1967? Who does number two work for? Who does number two work for? That's right, buddy. You show that turn who's boss. Who's going first? I will go first. All right. Uh, originally, the idea was to cast Terence Howard or Alec Guinness. Mm. And by all accounts, Terence Howard had the gig. Do we all know who Terence Howard is? It's right on the tip of my tongue. But... Guilty. Oh, okay. Guilty. Um, apparently, he had it written into his contract that he would not take part if. England were playing cricket at Lords in the filming week. They weren't. So there is no reason given in the book that I am reading, which is a complete production guide to the prisoner by Andrew Pixley, as to why he ultimately didn't take the role. But they quickly drafted in Murray Morris and apparently changed nothing with regards to the script in terms of reference to gender or lines of dialogue at all. Uh, letting us just play the role however she wanted to play it. The only sop, if that's a word, that we uh, that we make to Murray Morris portraying number two in this role is her costume. <laughs> the costume I was going to say. At the end was her choice based ah. upon her role as Peter Pan in a, a much lauded theatrical run of that play. Okay, because I couldn't see Alec. I, I was thinking Alec Guinness was going to be dressed as Peter Pan. No, originally <laughs> the fancy dress, the script has number two dressed as Old Father Time. Mm. And obviously that was changed. My pick, Alex Kingston. Oh, uh, oh yes. Oh wait, from. With a song, dude. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, for some reason, I was locking up and saying ER, which, yeah, she was in. Yeah, she was in but, ER, yeah. But my brain was cross-wired, so. Hmm. Much like, yeah, I had those big electrodes on my head, and somebody woke me up in the middle of the night, like in this episode. That's a great choice, I think. Yeah? Uh, my, um, do you have any others? Do you, uh, 
<clears throat> no, just watching this, I just thought I could totally see Alex Kingston doing this and just loving it. Well, I've got three choices that came to mind. Uh, the first thing I thought was Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah. Alan Mirren's a good choice, yeah. I mean, then or now. Yeah, either works. Uh, and my other one was Rosamund Pike. Oh, also that's interesting. Also an choice for number two, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so those are my number twos. Wait, that doesn't sound good at all. I mean, if we were going contemporary and staying with the Bond girl, Honor Blackman. Ooh. For my two... I kind of, I kind of, I didn't know about the recasting of the role because, as I've said, I'm just watching it and trying to give my own impressions. I'm not doing any research on this, uh, but I just figured, you know, female actress, and I thought somebody who is not physically imposing at all doesn't look like she'd put up much of a fight necessarily. Uh, if it ever came down to a physical thing, because that's what the impression I got watching this. And I thought of contemporary at that time. I thought of Cloris Leachman. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought she would fit the role. And then I thought currently, and it's it's interesting because it's somebody who I think could potentially be good in a fight, but also could you know shows vulnerability in in her roles. I thought of Marissa Tomei. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Well, I went with the uh, at the time. L- l- Lotte Lenya. Oh, Ro- from Russia from with Russia Love. With love. Yeah. Rosa mm. Klepp. Ooh, and that's that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent choice. And contemporarily, I, I felt Glenn Close could do it. Mm. You know, I think it would be a funny bit, and we're not going to do it, obviously, but I think it would be a funny bit if, if one of us just picked the same person every week. <laughs> and, and make it somebody like really just out there like Brian Dennehy every week Brian I think Weiss. Brian Dennehy would be a good number two <laughs> or oh, rotate it with Mr. French it's a best Brian Blessed <laughs> would be perfect Mr. T Mr. T I'd put it in number six <laughs> When I'm done with him, he's going to his village. Jim Neighbors. <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Jim Neighbors, they should just change the the person that does the announcements to Jim Neighbors. Good morning, good morning, good morning. <laughs> God, that would break anybody. Yeah, Fenella Fielding is much more welcome. I think we'll say. Uh, I just want to do some other things about the cast. I discovered something by researching a lot of the cast this time around. We could almost do a uh, a side thing of like which what other actresses on the show appear in Doctor Who. (laughs) Because Murray Morris is in a Doctor Who. Right, she's in she's in Kinda. Um, Yeah. Aubrey, Aubrey Morris. Uh, wait, no, he's not in Doctor Who, but but he's. Uh, he's not, he's, but he's in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He's in everything. He's in yes. work. He one in, of those actors. Yeah, it, he is the quote unquote that guy, but he would be a that guy for England. No, uh, halfway through his career, he moves to America. He's in Babylon Five. Oh, I remember, and he's in he's in quite a lot of American stuff in like the late eighties, early nineties. Hmm. Um. Like another one of the characters, uh, actors, at Alan White is in the Tenth Planet, which is a uh, uh, Patrick Troughton, Doctor Who, and then Patsy Smart, who was the old lady in the, like the maid in the in Arrival, who we just just covered last time. Um, she is also in Doctor Who. I guess she's in the Talons of Wing Cheyenne. Wow. Which, yeah. So I, I was, you know, doing a deep dive on the cast. So that's all I got for the cast. That's all I got, because I got no more. Oh, and Norma West, who was Bo Peep and the Observer, she was in uh, Space 1999, Breakaway. Oh, she in the first episode of 
Spice Nine. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. She was like something with Mission Control or Control. So. Um, I like the beginning of this one a lot, where it opens with the the doctors, who is essentially disobeying orders to go straight oh. for Number Six's mind, which has apparently been forbidden. Because throughout this episode, number two says, no, you know the rules regarding sex. So the implication being that they've been told to break him without operating on him. And is, well, isn't isn't the implication that if they try to do it that way, they risk destroying his mind and or losing out on any information that they might otherwise get? Mm-hmm. Whatever else they may get, they may not know or may not find or it may be useless to them. Yeah. What I liked about it is typically prisoner. They don't ever explain how he got like this. But if you watch carefully in the camera footage of them watching his room, the scientist who first goes to put the thing around his head sniffs the coffee cup. Yes. The implication being they've drugged him through the coffee cup. And later on, that coffee cup is right in the center of the frame. So it doesn't spell out how they did it to him, but it's there if you're paying attention. Well, and then later when uh, he's brought the drink again, he doesn't he doesn't take it. He, he's like, no, no. He's like, and he says, I've never seen a knight here. You know, implying that they drug people when they go to you know drug people mm. and then mess with them at night. Well, there's a there's a couple of interesting things about that. I have never watched this as episode two because everywhere I've ever watched it and on the DVD, it's on disc three of the dvds which is where i watched it so watching it as episode two was ever so slightly weird but there are things that he's doing in the episode that make you think well he's he can't have been there very long that and it's not just his line i'm new here it's the fact that he's still scoping the place out and he still thinks there are places he can go that aren't under surveillance Mm mm-hmm yeah, see, I've only ever seen it in this order, and then sometimes when I've watched it on Amazon Prime or other things, it doesn't feel right to me. I'll be like, no, this isn't what I remember, and I forgot about the order, you know, being be, being different with the tapes that I saw. And it, it's always interesting as well, if you do that with the show, sometimes watching things in different orders. Mm-hmm can throw up things that you've never noticed before like he's still openly defiant in this one in a way that he's only really like in the opening episodes this specifically checkmate he's very openly defiant of what's going on but he mellows a little bit as the series goes on he's never cooperative but how he goes about what he wants to achieve, he starts doing ever so slightly differently so as like, the series goes. More like passive resistance going on. Yeah. Yeah, the more he realizes that he can't just escape, he does exactly that. He, he'll, he'll resist in different ways. He'll be obnoxious to them in ways that are perhaps as overt. And sometimes he'll even hide that he is resisting. Whereas in this one, He's still very obnoxious mm-hmm. in a great way. I love Magoon in this one. Anthony Ski, who wrote this script, basically said the only direction he was given is that number six is a bastard. <laughs> there was no writer's Bible. There was no script thing or anything like that. So that was his direction. He's just a big pain in the ass. Yes, he's a massive pain in the ass. Well, you know what's interesting is that he gets up at at one of the points and he turns and there's number two on the TV looking at him. Good morning. Mm. And then later in the, in the episode, he puts the TV up to block it and it makes that. You know, so so this this also shows, you know, that even though this was the eighth episode, this would be something that a new you know, him being new to the village would be discovering and testing limits. You know, and I locked up. <laughs> no, it's the, the the thing with this one is it's a very slow burn, and there is a feeling that it doesn't really actually make much sense as a story. 
Yes, it is a little... I'm still not entirely sure what this one is about, other than referencing the idea once again that the village has all these bizarre Wicker Man-style things that go on, and that the fight between six and number two is going to be a cat and mouse game, literally depicted by the cat (laughs) that keeps showing up throughout the episode. That cat gets around. Hmm. What's interesting about that is that is there more that than one cat? Different? No, no, no. There's, there's it will be well. They used more than one cat. Obviously. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's different. It's interesting. Over here, a black cat is lucky, mm. and in America, a black cat is unlucky. So that itself means something different depending on where you're watching it. Mm. And the carnival stuff is all nice <clears> and fun <throat> and colourful and all of that stuff. Yeah, but did but you the, notice like like you? there's all the happy music and then they show all the people's faces and none of them are smiling when they're walking down the steps yeah it, it's a, it's a very interesting attack on what exactly is a society where everything you do is watched and monitored and living in one of the most surveilled countries in europe we're well aware of this at what point does your surveillance stop being for your safety and become something else something more insidious there's really a an even greater return of the archon vibe in this one <laughs> with the yeah. whole festival and oh you you have to participate in the festival people of your age <laughs> yeah they, they definitely got that feeling with the festival this one fe- felt a little uh, I think intentionally so so I don't mean this as a criticism but it felt a little disjointed it felt like the story was jumping from thing to thing a little bit you know, you had the brainwashing thing, you had the uh, festival thing, you had the trial, which reminded me of uh, Encounter at Farpoint, by the way. Uh, you know, it was just kind of like jumping back and forth, and it I think it was meant to make you as the viewer intentionally uncomfortable. Uh, well... Which I it, get the feeling is the whole feeling of this show, is that you're never supposed to get comfortable. <laughs> I don't know. I felt it all kind of tied, tied together, to, to, to be honest. You know, from opening up with the uh, doctor slash torturer, uh, the whole surveilling from every angle, the not where we couldn't get into. Te- it, it was all, you know, about s- surveillance and living in a police state. I think, you know. Oh yeah, um, I mean, yeah, I guess that. I mean, there is like, I guess, an overarching theme and and feeling to that. Uh, but like I said, I just felt this, like the story didn't seem to have like a real narrative flow. And again, I don't think that's a criticism in this case, whereas in many instances, I do think it would be a criticism of, of storytelling because I think the lack of narrative flow in many instances uh, is a sign of bad storytelling. In this one, I think it's purposeful. At least that's the impression I got. I think it's interesting that you're all approaching that in regards to what happened with it upon completion yeah that's what i'm just gonna yeah we can can get into that as when we've discussed the actual episode as it's presented to us um it is disjointed it does move around in different places a lot it doesn't go where you think it's gonna go it's actually one of the bleakest i think is the best word for episodes of the show because it's quite clearly showing he's not going anywhere. It's quite clearly showing that he is alone in his resistance of it. He's only being allowed to be this openly defiant because there are orders from somewhere else to leave him alone and break him naturally. And even when he's got a number two like this one, who is quite hands-off in terms of how she's going about breaking him, I think she's one of the more not evil she's not evil she's only doing her job she's she's one of the more insidious of the number mm. twos in that behind what seems to be a genial appearance she seems like somebody who would totally go the whole way in doing what she needs to do but at the moment she's been told we're not going to do it that way but the fact that she lets the doctor who was just going to experiment on him without orders she lets them off implies that maybe she's not the rule follower as well that she she pretends to be she definitely seemed to have this 
smugness about her, like a smug confidence that things were going to go her way no matter what you did. Uh, in in that way, it, it it seemed to counter her very small, frail appearance, and I thought that was a, like a good contrast because it it just it makes you sit there and say, well, why is she so comfortable with this? Mm. Her dress is is interesting as well, in that she doesn't dress like the other number twos. She herself is an individual in how she dresses and approaches the job. Yeah, because most of them all wear the same thing. Um, on a side note, did you notice the difference in the intro this time around? She only says information twice. Right, but this is the first time they've seen this intro. Because last time was Arrival, so now this is where you... You'll kind of see this, except for like three other episodes. This is going to be the way the intro goes. That you're going to be, you're going to see the number two in the credits. Did you notice that it was sh- that it was a little bit shorter? Yes. Oh, okay. And then then we have the longer sequence at the end with the information, information. The scene that shows when he's leaving. That's it says way out. There is no way out now. Yep. Which is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know these opening scenes, and obviously they they took great care in putting together this opening scene. But it's I, I, it just strikes me in contrast to today when they really have no opening songs and things anymore, uh, for the most part. I mean some do. Uh, Strange New Worlds does, uh, but a lot of shows just have like a little quick. Uh, you know, title card that comes on the screen and that's it. And then they'll, you know, they'll go right into the uh, episode with just, you know, the names kind of appearing on the screen as, as you're going along. So to me, like that, that's a, a contrast in just style of the time too mm-hmm. that we're seeing, which is kind of cool. I, I, I kind of miss the opening songs only because so many of them over the years were so catchy and memorable. Uh, that it, it kind of stinks now that you know they don't do it. The beach has another rover scene, but also interesting when he's trying to follow the woman at the beginning, who he was talking to. Rover gets in between him and her, mm-hmm. which I thought was fun because you don't really see that a lot either. Rover actually saying, "No, no, you're not allowed in there." So you guys warming up the rover yet, or you still think it's schlocky? (laughs) So far, so far, I'm still schlocky. Yeah, same for me. So far, it's you know, it's it's a big balloon. (laughs) It's hard to really give it too much more than that. But we had mini rover at the end of the episode on a on a stick. Yeah, yeah, there's a mini rover, isn't there? Yeah. With Dutton as as uh, the jester. Number six is character witness at his trial. How yeah. apropos that your character witness is a fool. <laughs> yeah, well, I see. I, re- I read that as really quite the final insult that not only have they got to him and lobotomized him, much like they do in Planet of the Apes, but then they've dressed him as the court jester. Yep. Uh, it, it, this one really sets the template up for what the majority of the number two and the number six battles are going to be that they are going to be battles of wits they're going to be played in the mind rather than fist fights and car chases and it's murray morris who sets that up even though as a viewing member you didn't see her first which is so it was quite interesting to watch this as the second episode it, it, it feels like they've it feels like they've kind of established already that he can't win this based upon physical prowess he needs to somehow outwit them uh you know that that rover in and of itself is enough to prevent him from ever having any chance of uh of you know winning this based on his physical abilities you know what struck me when he he finds the radio and he starts to play it and it's speaking in phrases and somewhat gibberish it kind of reminded me if you see the old world war ii movies 
of the messages that were radioed to the French resistance. Where if you heard a bunch of them, they didn't really make sense. But if you knew what the codes were, it made sense. You know, almost symbolizing like he's part of the resistance. Mm. And where, also, where was he picking that signal up from? The village. <laughs> yeah. It, it it also seemed reminiscent to me of what was eventually, I believe, stolen from them or copied from them uh, in Lost at the beginning when they when they finally get on the radio and they're hearing the message in French and they don't really mm. know what the significance of it is. Hadn't thought of that. I think Lost wanted to be the prisoner. <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely think there was an element of that in it, or certainly uh, largely inspired by. Mm. And and Lost though, uh, <laughs> it, it it seemed to be like they set up a premise and then they didn't, they weren't sure where they were going to go with it or how they were going to go with it. Especially when you consider that their main actor through the entire series, which I think was seven seasons, uh, was only supposed to be in the pilot. Yeah, it's supposed to be Michael Keaton, wasn't it? And they were going to kill him off. So it's, you know, the, clearly they, they did a lot of stuff by the seat of their pants. The character of Ben was supposed to be, a, you know, a couple of episodes and gone, and he became a major character on the show. So uh, Lost is funny, and I don't want to go too far afield with it, but when I watched Lost originally, and I watched it pretty much religiously, uh, the whole feel was, well, where are they leading us to? Let me try and figure this out. And ultimately, when they got to the final episode, it was a disappointment with how they played it out, and somehow that put a stink on the whole series in my mind. Until when the pandemic started and I had a lot of uh, binge time. And for reasons that I couldn't quite explain, I decided to do a rewatch of it. And watching that series without the goal being to figure out what's going oh. on. Uh, and the goal just being to watch each episode for enjoyment purposes. It was far, far better than it was. At least far more satisfying than it was in the original viewing. I just did that recently, about a, six, seven months ago, with Agents of Shield, and as I rewatched it, now I knew where the story was going to go, and I could look for connections and see how things fit together. And I, yeah, it was a much more enjoyable viewing the second time around. But this is not an Agents of Shield or Lost podcast, although it's good that this brings up the discussions. Um, so. Yeah, they- Oh. The thing with The Prisoner is to very much remember that it was made in the 1960s and therefore it was not planned out. Now, apparently in the filming of this episode, the original editor basically said to Patrick McGoon, so what's this all about? And his answer was, wait until you see the last episode. Now, whether or not that means McGoon knew how it was going to end when he started it, or whether that's just something he told people to keep them interested. I don't know. Having seen the last episode, I kind of doubt that he knew that's what he was going to do. Hmm. The One of the more interesting things about this is there's a lot of Port Marion location footage exactly in the middle of the episode at about 23 minutes. When McGowan's listening to the radio, where he's sat in the circular cement thing and mm-hmm. he's got a good view of the village i have got a picture of the kids all in that exact position oh that's Literally what i was thinking sat the, <clears throat> I, I was the, wondering when, if you've been there when we were watching it i paused it at that moment and said to Andrew, we've got a picture of the kids exactly the where he sat and it's not changed is it it's, you could sit where he sits there and you would have exactly the same view it's exactly the same as it always was i have a question for andy at one point in the uh, program, I think it's Bo Peep, or the Watcher, 240, whatever you want to call her, she refers to either the government or the rules as of the people, by the people, for the people. Mm-hmm. For us, that's a quote Abraham Lincoln said. Is there another source for that as well that maybe Lincoln ripped off from your side of the ocean? Not that I'm aware of, or not that I know of. I only ever know it from from the Lincoln quote as well. 
Well, there's a lot of, uh, I guess you would say, things that are twisted in this episode because uh, number two says we're, that they're very democratic. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> as long as you want what the majority wants. Right. So it, it's it's kind of like tongue in cheek. Yes, for you know, by the people for the yeah. Not really. That, 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 that goes back to something I think Benjamin Franklin said when they were putting the government together. It was like, I don't want a tyrant of one running the show, and I don't want a tyrant of a mob running the show. And as we'll see in a later episode, or have already seen, depending on your order, um, they do have democratic elections. <laughs> Sorry. And so did the Soviets. Exact amount. So that, uh, to me, watching this one second like this again, that's what was interesting about it—that it was questioning everything. I don't think it falls on any particular political side. I think it's questioning everything in terms of what freedom really means. Hmm. What do you think about this costume for um, the? Um Wow, the carnival. Thank you. Yes, I was trying to say that he went as himself. That he was himself, but kind of. uh, They had told him his clothes were burned. Is 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 the message there that what he presents is not real? Yes, that's how I took it. Yeah, they're like, yeah, here's your costume. You know, you know that he's yeah. But then when he's at the carnival. He's not wearing his suit. He's wearing a tuxedo. Well, so also... don't, don't they say they they brought it especially for him? Well, and and that so I was thinking this right, and I just thought of this when I got up this morning about the tuxedo. So everybody else is in period costumes, different eras, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but yet he is dressed in a tuxedo, which. At that time, like say in Vegas, would be something worn by an entertainer at a show. Would also so, be worn by Bond in like every well, movie. Well, true, but I saw him more as he was the entertainment for the carnival, dressed in the tuxedo. Just the well, thought. Well, he's showing up for a trial he doesn't know is happening. Mm-hmm. So essentially, he's being fed to the system. Because the, the episode actually ends with the entire village hunting him, and that's never addressed. I, the first, that, t- yeah, the first time I saw that, when I first, the, the first time I watched this episode, I wasn't, I didn't see that coming because, well, that would have been back in high school, and I hadn't watched as much, t- you know, stuff. So to suddenly he, I, you know, he just, you know, they're like, oh, the sentence is death, and he walks through the crowd, and I'm like, so what, what's What's going to happen? What's going on? And well, he keeps are, they not, talking, are they not he, saying though that we can change public sentiment when we want to? It's it's the uh, modern day social media. Well, and then he gets two steps down the hall and he starts to run and they all scream and like bloody murder and they're there's chasing him and I was like whoa 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 I didn't see that coming. I mean now you would figure out, oh yeah that's exactly what's going to happen but back then I was you know what oh my god and yeah and then this never is brought up again but it was but is it because you know the other side plot we didn't talk about is when he he finds the body on the beach and then he's putting his information information and a note into like the corpse's pocket in a bag and then he pushes it back out to sea yeah, real subtle. Yeah, obviously he doesn't realize he's being watched because he steals rope and a life preserver. Oh yeah, well, I got I, no, I just got that as as just his his balls basically. I don't know if you have ever done this, but if you do something in such a way that you look confident in doing it, you can oh, get no, away no. with it. I agree. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. But we know. Although, but he doesn't know yet. That's why this is good as a second episode. He just doesn't know how much he's being watched. No, oh. he doesn't know that the surveillance is on the beach and possibly in the cave as well. Yeah. But you've also got to admire his resourcefulness and ruthlessness 
Again, him basically that, using a dead body. That guy was getting ripe in that cave. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, so he, you know, his plan is to put it back out to sea, get help, and then later at the end of the episode, he finds the body, and and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's yes, we're gonna do some, we're gonna change. Basically, they're just saying, yeah, we're gonna make it look like you, and the world believes you're dead. So. Is that the completion of his quote-unquote death sentence, which is why the village won't chase him in later episodes, because he's already dead? See, I, I've just got the I just got the idea from this that number two was showing him that they can change public sentiment whenever they want to. Mm. You're only safe here as long as we say you're safe here. Oh, and it yeah. was probably very easy for them overnight to just drug the entire village again into forgetting that they'd ever done this. Well, uh, I, one of the notes, you know, because we said earlier that that this was there was some incomplete things with this episode. And I guess in its original ending, uh, it says, which was to give number six a more triumphant resolution by having him tell number two being dead does have its advantages. Then return to the dance only for it to pull out and fade to black. See. Andrew Pixley's book says that the first assembly edit was completely rejected by McGovern because it ran short and there was planned to shoot some extra material alongside other episodes but there was insufficient coverage to make it a coherent story and it was only when a, an editor named John Smith <laughs> not Hannibal as far as I know or the Doctor um, <laughs> saw the work because he was friends with Don Chaffey and he was responding particularly to the visuals of it the way it was shot the, the nighttime shoots on the beach the long shadows the, the surrealism visuals of everyone being at the trial but dressed in fancy dress and he felt that he could put together a cut that worked visually and it's interesting as well, a lot of television in the 50s and early 60s was just theatre on film or radio with pictures. And The Prisoner is one of the first serials of that type to really embrace that it's television. There are episodes coming up that are purely silent, which is commonplace now, but wasn't done in the 60s. There are episodes coming up that are completely off the wall and off concept. Again, the closest you would probably go to with that would be The Avengers, not the film <laughs> so Smith put together a version based purely on the cuts that were already there so there was no subsequent reshooting needed but the delay that that caused meant that the episode did not err second and it's also got the advantage of it uses the, the cave set and the beach set and the trial set were seen and done for this episode but was subsequently used in other episodes, but those other episodes were seen first. Mm -hmm. So there's an amount of moritation of budget going on. Well, that trial that's, set is like, I think that's the same set for number two for the observation area and other things we're going to see later in, in, in the series. So they do reuse their sets. Good. They do dress them up enough that, that you really, only if you're familiar with the series, would you kind of like, Hey, wait a minute. I think that looks familiar. Yeah. So, and, some of the filming as well was because they were filming at sunset and dawn to get those long shadows and obviously they were up against the clock there mm -hmm. so some of the beach footage did run out of time and obviously they're going to have to film around the tide again if you've been to Port Merion the, the tide comes in pretty much through most of that beach so there's only certain times of the day they could film this stuff so I, I think he ultimately did a good job putting it together if he doesn't entirely work narratively and I'm not convinced that it does it's never boring and it's no. always entertaining and it's always gripping and the choice of costumes are interesting little Bo Peep has lost her sheep her sheep is number six she's supposed to be observing number six and dressing up Dutton as the court jester is the final insult to a guy who presumably was as good as six at his job well but i don't th but he even says he's like i've already i he's a really sad 
Yeah, he's been broken. He's been broken, and he tells them, I've told them everything, and they don't believe me, and they're going to do more to me. You know, and that's just like, that's, that's, it's like, no, I've told you everything. No, no, we don't think so. (laughs) And then that, that brings to mind the question to me is like, who are these other villagers who are happy to be there? You know, it's like, where do they come from? Then, you know, are they peripheral spies that, that, you know, the government or, you know, whoever's running this whole system had, you know, very little doubt that they got all the information they needed from them so that it was a much more pleasant experience? I think Uh, that if you're at the village and you just basically break right away, you know, go with the program, that then you'll get a position of comfort or power or whatever. If you're a hard nut to crack like Dutton and Six, they may never believe that you've truly given them everything, that you're always going to be holding something back and they're going to kill you, wipe out your brain, whatever. So in theory, the uh, the artwork that I've created for this episode, uh, in that artwork, Andy and Dave broke really, really quick and they're sitting there having a beer now in the village. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The smart I, I, the I literally, band. yeah, I, I literally looked at that beach and looked at that place and thought, so I don't have to work, I don't have to earn money, everything's provided for me. Sure, what do you want to know? <laughs> Just get me a big one of those big tricycles. Yeah, <laughs> get me a tricycle and a nice suit, and I will happily spill the beans to a beautiful blonde maid. And then Paul is number six because he's in a tuxedo. And I'm Dutton because I'm wearing a pair of sunglasses <laughs> with only one lens. See, I don't see you as Dutton. I see you as number two. <laughs> Your goal is to break me. It's, well, it's I, I've, already, I've already done that because I can get you to sing whatever I want. Pretty much. I've already broken you. And I wish to break it's, you again. Did you notice as well that Bo Peep's badge was different to everybody else's? Yes. It was black. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's any significance to that. I don't know if I've seen that before on another character yet or not. I don't remember. I don't think so. That is odd. Oh, and our and our judges were... Uh, was that supposed to be... Well, one was Napoleon. The other one could have been Caesar or Nero. Fiddling why Rome burns. Yeah, or, and then that's uh, Queen Elizabeth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as I mentioned, that reminded me of the uh, trial scenes in Encounter at Farpoint. Mm-hmm. She just made me think of Queenie from Blackadder. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should make that our next show. <laughs> I love Blackadder. Um. Oh, uh, so number six uh, proves that you that the Clark Kent disguise does work. Yes. yes. Let me put on a lab coat and a pair of glasses. No one will ever see me. See, my only note on that one was a production one. There was a trap door in the middle of the room, and I was watching it going, right, that's there for a reason, because obviously that's a set. Mm-hmm. So at some point, somebody's going to go through that trap door. Yeah, and then, he, then as he's running, he goes back into that room... Because that was that was the morgue. He found the bodies in there and found the body that's going to be changed to look like him. Hmm. Runs down, finds what is we assume to be number two's room or some someone else's room. And there's there's the teletype. He rips out all the guts. Number two comes in, talks to him a little bit, and then the teletype just starts again with all the guts ripped out. It's like see, the machine has a life of its own. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter. And then she just laughs at him maniacally, and the the episode ends in her Peter Pan outfit. So I I always wondered why she was in that Peter Pan outfit. Uh, you know, other than the fact that she could obviously play Peter Pan, but now, as you have said, she did, which makes more sense. I thought it was just to kind of create a surreal feeling about oh, what's going on in there. Yeah. Well, Peter Pan was the leader of his group, right? The law, well, she's the number two, though. Mm. Yeah, but in terms of the village, she, they, them, two, is in charge. 
they don't have to run to whoever number one is supposed to be to ask for every decision. They're, they are allowed a little bit of latitude to do whatever they want to do the job. Twos, the twos run the village, but the question is, how many villages are there? And who runs them? Yeah. Actually, that's a thought I hadn't really had. I just assumed this was the only village. That's That adds another dimension to it. Paul, we all live in our own village in some way. I do. <laughs> well, some of us are the village idiots. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, <laughs> uh, as, as we were speaking, I did set up an email address, so I should put it out there. So if anybody wants to contact us, I tried to do the village people at gmail.com, and that's already taken, apparently. So we are the village freaks at gmail.com. One word, the village freaks. So if you have any comments or questions or want to sing a song for us or anything of that nature, uh, please feel free to email us at that email address. Once again, thevillagefreaks at gmail.com. Does that mean the name of the show is now changed to the village freaks instead of the village people? It does not. Okay, good. Because I like being the village people. I get to pull out my Navy outfit. Wait, I've said too much. I, I never thought I'd get used for that Indian headdress again. <laughs> I also got a hard hat and a tool belt. Just saying. No leather chaps, though. No leather chaps. So you are incomplete. Uh, <laughs> we had to end this conversation before it goes any further. <laughs> Sweet. So see what outfit Andy's going to wear. <laughs> Anything else on this one? Any other comments? Any other good things from the book? No, no. The, the book is the, the book is very. It's a good book if you're interested in television production, but that's by and large what the viewing notes in this one are about. When it was filmed, where it was filmed, which bits were on location, possible actors that were considered for roles. It's interesting when it gets to stuff like how this one was tinkered around within editing, and the feeling that it is the editing that saves it. But by doing that, it pretty much sets the template out for what will be the prisoner's standard number two versus number six episodes, which they will do every now and again, where a number, a new number two comes in and he just sees it as their job to break six by whatever means necessary. And it just becomes a battle of wits between the two of them. This mixes essentially what the prisoner is. It's more about ideas and what you think of it than it is about telling a coherent story and it is very visually interesting and there is an awful lot of it you can dissect to the point where you can dissect it to death without really understanding it or taking it to bits and getting idea of what the creators really intended oh, what's the name of the book again Andy? it's well, mine was a complete production guide by Andrew Pixley, which came free with the DVD set. But the hardcover... Hold on. You can edit this, Paul. I can. And I may you, not, and but I can. will. I am not an editor. <laughs> I am a free man. The hardcover is The Prisoner and Illustrated History by Andrew Pixley. And the free one that came with the DVD set is just the notes and the background on it. Whereas the hardback is glossy and full of colour and pictures and all that stuff. So is, the hardcover is the one that's available commercially. Is Pixley P-I-X-L-E-Y? Yeah. But okay. there's loads of books about The Prisoner. Oh. Wasn't that the... Uh... Like the neighbor, like the neighboring town on Green Acres. Uh, Pixley. Don't know. Don't remember. I know that the pig was Arnold Ziffel. <laughs> <laughs> and I only good. remember that. I only remember that from an episode of Benson, in which Benson plays a game with death, who is played by the actor that played Richard Daystrom in The Ultimate Computer. And the <laughs> trivia question was, what is the name of the pig on Green Acres? And Robert Guillaume goes, Arnold Ziffel! 
That is the only reason, because of all those conjoining of actors and shows I had seen, is the only reason I remember the name of the pig on Green Acres. That's that's for me. That just happens to be common knowledge. <laughs> I can, I can tell you the reason I know it is because I've seen many, many episodes of Green Acres in my life. <laughs> but I think we digress. I think we digress. Are we ready oh, to read? I think we are. All right. I am, I am keeping track of the ratings. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll go first on this one because... It's interesting to me, there's, there's a, a dichotomy here, because I think if I had discovered this show on my own, and I didn't have anyone to share it with, because I could tell you, if this show was just being aired today, I suspect that my wife would have no interest in it whatsoever. So if I didn't have some sort of forum to discuss it and kind of go through it, I probably would give up on it, because I don't know if this is a show I just want to experience on my own. So it ends up being just the opposite, though, because since we do have this forum and we do have the ability to discuss it, and I hope the fact that listeners have the ability to listen to what we say, you know, serves that purpose for them as well. uh, It's fascinating to me. And we're rating this on a scale of one to six. I think this episode is... It was particularly interesting. If it was, it was weird because it was a little slow moving. It was a little disjointed. Again, I think that was intentional. Uh, but it, but it was riveting to me in its own way, just the same. So I'm giving it a 5.0. Is this out of sixes? Out of six. Yes. Uh, well, interesting, lad. Just as a, a capper on this, the two Andrew Pixley books both put this in different places. In the viewer notes of the DVD version, it's episode four. In the hardcover, it's episode 12. So it's either been episode four, six, seven, or 12, depending (laughs) on your point of view. Uh, I don't think this is one of the better ones. And originally, when Bill said Dance of the Dead is next, I was a little bit, really? We're going with that one as episode two? Because if I was going to go through them all just by the titles... The only thing I would remember about this is that Murray Morris was number two. Having watched it as episode two, not only did it work, but I actually found it much more interesting than I have on previous viewings. And I do wonder if that is because by pumping it up to number two, you haven't seen the other ones that this basically sets the template for. The surrealism, the slightly off-kilter storytelling, the slight juxtaposition between a standard narrative and you filling in a lot of the blanks yourself the visual identity of the show a lot of that comes from this episode so if you see it further down the line it doesn't work perhaps as well as it does here so i i bumped this up i'm gonna go 4.5 as well originally i thought oh, it's definitely a three but it's not it's it's a really good episode for showing six just how futile his resistance can be Well, well, I started watching this series when we decided to do this with my wife, because my wife is very into British television. In fact, most of the time I'll come down and she has the TV on and I think I've crossed the border someplace. (laughs) So we started watching this and she watched the first one. She watched this one with me. And then I was unceremoniously told, I'm done with this. (laughs) You're on your own. And my response was, I sat through seven years of Lost. This is the bridge too far for you. (laughs) But I digress. I watched this episode twice, once with her and then once last night again to refresh everything. I think this episode is brilliant. The subtext the messaging about who has access to government, who's really making the rules, that this quote-unquote system has a life of its own. I thought it was fantastic, and I'm very, very curious to see where it goes. I gave it a 5.0. 
Alright. Um I think I'm going to give it uh, five floating corpses for my rating. Um, it's it's what I remember it to be. It's it, I mean, taking more of a deeper dive now, um, you know, has has well, they can't all be sixes. But, it's very um, close though with this show. Yeah, I know, I know that that that, but this one maybe because it is a little disjointed, even though for Dave that that adds stuff to it. But so it's a five, it's a solid five. See, that's what Dave said. There is fascinating because in my head, I have decided I know what Dave's favorite episode is going to be. <laughs> Name it. Checkmate. Ah. Uh. Mm. I think I, you know, Dave will love that episode. We will see. I have not comes. watched that in years, but I do know that someone... I, I watched it the last time we had a general election. Oh. Are you sure you're not talking about free-for-all? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. I'm mixing Shh, up it would, been, it would have been yeah. better. Okay. It would have okay. been better if you didn't tell Dave which one you think is his best, just to see if it gets that way. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's uh, what I was thinking. But Dave, no, pretend Dave, you didn't hear any of this. What? Did you say something? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so that's what we thought. But what did Blaine say? Blaine says... Hi, guys. This is the kind of show I really enjoy. Well-produced, well-acted, demanding of the viewer's undivided attention, and compelling. We have a better understanding of how the village operates, but we still have no idea about what its purpose is and why number six must be won over. I also find the interpretation of the death sentence engaging. At this point, it's difficult to comment on this outside of a plot summary, because this is still raising more questions than it answers. I don't know how many answers we'll eventually get, nor do I want to know until the answers come as I watch, but I'm here for the ride. Also, I don't know if any of our hosts are watching via iTunes as I am. I suspect a few of the listeners are. Since the order in which you are covering the series differs from the broadcast order, in order to align more closely with Patrick McGowan's wishes, as I'm sure you've explained, those of us on iTunes need to jump around. The next episode to watch is listed as number 9 in the iTunes library. I'd be happy to continue to provide this information for future episodes if you guys find it helpful. So, yeah, I think Blaine kind of thinks what we think, uh, that... You know that it's intriguing and that you want to see where it's going to go and that you know he's kind of hooked uh i don't really know that there's any other thing to take from that but what would be the next episode that we're going to do what are we doing next time next time andy it's not me. This is your job on this show. We discussed oh, was this it? last week. Yes, I don't know the KCXL four eight four four point five L. This is your you job, did. Bill. Andrew is correct. I forgot. <laughs> hey, they they broke me. They took everything out. I had nothing else to give. I got nowhere else to go. It's just as much fun for me you telling me what order these episodes are because I okay. haven't got goddamn clue. Okay. So, so what are we doing next time, Bill? Next time on an all-new episode of The Village People, someone might want to release the boar worms as we watch Checkmate. Oh, it seems all right to me. Yeah. Don't let it fool you. We keep you under close surveillance. A game of chess with human pieces. That's a good move, wasn't it? I know a better one. gentleman on the screen you love him passionately devotedly you would do anything for him anything when can you be ready tonight this time tomorrow we'll be free see this thrilling adventure of the prisoner on this channel if i didn't know you better i think you didn't love me anymore i don't and if you didn't love me why did you give me this locket 
So that will be our next episode. Come on, Andy. You know uh, why I said that, right? Uh, once again, you said that, yeah. Once again, of... I'm going to let our listeners know that if they want to contact us, it is thevillagefreaks at gmail.com. But otherwise, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Be seeing you. Who are you? The village people. Who are the supervisor, Paul Spataro. The chess master, Dave Pascarella. Rover, Dr. Bill Robinson. And Andrew Leyland as the butler. The village people. Investigating the prisoner.